especially when we make guidelines that are going to be used potentially by hundreds of people, we have such a responsibility to do them properly. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the north of Germany. And usually I, I record this podcast together with Enrico Bertini, who is a professor at Northeastern University in Boston. But today I'm solo, um, but luckily I'm joined by two guests today, which uh, you will hear about in a minute. Just in terms of introductions, on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And the topic today is data design themes, design systems, style guides, guidelines, design languages. You can already see there's a whole cosmos of new formats emerging here in this space that we want to explore together today. And yeah, hopefully you'll learn something new and it's uh, an exciting uh, new emerging field. And um, yeah, I hope we can shed a bit of light on these mysterious terms. Um, before we dive right in, just a quick note, our podcast is listener supported. We don't have any ads. So if you enjoy the show, you might uh, consider supporting us. You can do this with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. So then there's a little um, donation you do every time we publish an episode. Or you could also send us one-time donations uh, on paypal.me slash data stories. And it's always much appreciated. Also small amounts, it just keeps us going and we also have a bit of cost, so um, any contribution you can make is, is super appreciated. If you don't have uh, or don't want to uh, like uh, do monetary support, you can also just support us on social media or give us a good rating, um, anything helps. And if not, it's also fine. Just keep listening. <laughs> Anyways, let's get started. Uh, let's dive right in. And now I can reveal our guests. Uh, our guests today are Gabrielle and Alan. Hi. Hi, Moritz. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Quick introduction. So, Gabrielle, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Gabrielle Merit. Uh, I'm French. I'm a independent information designer. So I help uh, ethically driven organization uncover important truth and share stories with intention, intention backed by data. Um, and I'm also currently, for another month, <laughs> the senior database designer at Pentagram in the uh, team of George Alubi which we also had on the show a few times and who's, of course, well-known. And yeah, it's exciting to see you two work together. <laughs> yeah, the incredible Georgia. <laughs> Alan, how about you? Yeah, um, I'm Alan Wilson. I'm a principal designer at Adobe, where I work primarily on the Experience Cloud, which is Adobe's enterprise business. We uh, make marketing software and other tools to help uh, large organizations keep their messaging and help their customers. And I guess the main thing that we'll be discussing today is uh, my con contributions to the design system at Adobe, which is called Spectrum. Right. Yes, and this is also how we got in touch around two years ago because uh, I started working together with Core, an agency in the UK, on a design system for the World Health Organization. And um, yeah, and we sort of 
<laughs> uncovered this whole world of, wow, there's, there's so much happening in this space. And it's also really hard to orient yourself. Like it, it sounds so easy if somebody says, oh, we need some database style guide or guidelines. Can you help us do that? You know, everybody's like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And then once you look into, oh, what do we do? What do we actually do now? What do we offer? What's the format? What's the scope of the whole project? You realize, oh, it's not even that clear. <laughs> and everybody needs to figure out what they are doing in that space. Um, and so, yeah, so, so there's so many flavors and, and approaches you can do. And, and so, yeah, I got in touch with you, Alan, and, and, and a few other folks who have experience in the field to help us guide along a bit. <laughs> and here we are. Um, yeah. So uh, I know both of you have been working on these types of projects. So uh, before we go into all the nuances, what the differences between different like subgenres are, um, maybe we can start with the purpose. Like what in your experience do people hope to achieve when they start building a, a design style guide or start formulating design guidelines? Uh, what do you think? What's what's the hope connected to that? Or what's the value to an organization to have something like that? Um, I guess I'll go first. <laughs> I, I think the main value is answering questions, right? As organizations grow, you have to coordinate a lot more uh, to make sure that you as, an, as a group have a coordinated voice. And questions uh, are very common, right? What font should I use? What, what are our standard colors? Like, how do we uh, lay out this particular document type? Um, people need standards to communicate in a unified way. And one of the things I like about this space is that there's just such a broad range, as you already touched on, uh, of ways to answer those questions. But for me, it's all about helping people do their jobs more effectively and efficiently by answering questions that they have a difficult time answering on their own. Mm -hmm. I love that answer. <laughs> yeah, that seems pretty pretty comprehensive already. Yeah, I had a way more like strict like dot list. <laughs> yeah, but I love that answer of answering question because it, it it I think it yeah it answers a lot on the definition. I see it, on mine. I kind of see like four kind of point of values: um, efficiency, just the idea of the idea of answering question faster. Um, so just, you know, people being able to reuse design to know what to do, you know, all these things comes into efficiency. Um, consistency, uh, which I think is the one that people don't always see, but for an organization, being able to reproduce a design over and over or reuse, you know, some time of, let's say I have a set of rules and principle that they can build upon. Um, scale. And I think Alan is going to know that more than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then... The one that I don't see often, but to add pentagram in, in my work, that's pretty important, which is recognizability. So in in those guidelines and style gal, the idea of being able to produce something that is recognized by an audience, like brand them. Um, and we don't talk about that often in data viz, but that's really mm -hmm. important to me when creating style guides. Yeah. Yeah. And in the like more branding and PR and, and advertising world, brand guidelines are super common, right? And yes. often we just receive them as, oh, here are our brand guidelines. Can you make sure the charts you do, you know, fit into that, right? And so, 
Yeah, that, that's already where where we touch these wider like communication contexts. But in this world, it's very common to have like a big book with like this is the fonts we use. These are the colors we have. This is how we pick photos. You don't crop photos like this. You crop them like that, and so on. And yeah, I think in database it's a bit more new that we would be so explicit about this is our approach, right? Yeah. I think one of the reasons DataViz is emerging more and more in the style guide space is because people are using it more and they have more questions about it. So we're yeah. traditionally style guides focused on how you use the logo and how you use photography and other visuals to communicate. People are using charts to communicate and they have questions about how to best do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a natural evolution of us actually mattering, which is good. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And and this this idea of like, you know, authority. I think I think in the world where trust is hard to gain for organizations mm. that have gained that trust or are trying to gain that trust, having that recognizability of like, oh, this specific, you know, data visualization is coming from this institution that I'm familiar with. And I can recognize that at very first look seems really important. Um, mm -hmm. you know, in the public discourse. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So I think we have the, the motivation is clear. So you want consistency, you want to scale design, you want to make sure all outputs coming from one source have a minimum level of quality, they are recognizable, they they look from the same family at least. Um, and yeah, and not have that be a mysterious process that some gifted, you know, rock star designers can only do, but sort of scale the capability to anybody. Ideally, right? That oh, with the right rule set and the right tools and the right building blocks, anybody can now make a chart that looks like coming from that organization and and is solid, right? Um, that's the hope. It's a big goal, of course. Um, but now we're we're looking into okay, how can we enable that? Right? What are what are the things we can supply? And and this is super crucial to be clear about that. That that's a trap I ran into in a, in a few projects that we weren't really clear what the difference is between a style guide or guidelines or a component system or you know like all these things. And then you realize, oh, they actually wanted to have. A big book with lots of database do's and don'ts. And we were like, oh, we thought we were just designing a database theme. Like pick some colors, right? And so there's a whole spectrum of of possible outputs you can have, right? And um, maybe let's talk about a few of them. And I, I try to organize it from small to big, <laughs> sort of. So I think the smallest thing is probably like a design theme where you say, like, yeah, oh, these are the colors and fonts you can use for a given chart, something like this. And maybe a brand has multiple themes, like a light theme and a dark theme. It's like a skin you can apply to a chart, like an Excel template type thing, maybe. Um, then the next step is maybe a design system. Alan, is Spectrum a design system? Where, where's Spectrum on that ladder? Yeah, Spectrum is a design system. Um, and I would put it further down, maybe yes. even at the very bottom. At the okay. bottom. Okay. <laughs> I'm also in the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I think design system, I think the difference between a design system and a style guide or a theme or just a set of guidelines is a design system has infrastructure behind it. Mm -hmm. so that when you make a change, those changes roll out 
into all the uh-huh. places that they need to. Maybe there's also software components that exactly. automatically implement that stuff and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it provides resources for all parties that are involved. So the the designers get the design assets they need. The engineers have the engineering components that they're going to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone else in the organization has the the guidelines and materials, templates, things they need to, to do their work. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, cool. So we have design themes automated in a design system and super well documented. So then how about guidelines and style guides? How does that fit in? I don't know how Alan feels about it. <laughs> to me, so I, I work hard on that one. I was like, is there a difference between guidelines and style guides? And yeah. I think we use it pretty freely in the design world. It kind of, we use it, at least in, in the, you know, brand side of things, we use it kind of like whatever. Uh, we can exchange them. However, I could see a difference where for me, like one guideline could be like do and don'ts. Versus a style guide is kind of putting all those guidelines together. Um, so to me, style guide is a collection of rule. Uh, you know, it tells you what you're allowed to do and not to do given mm. a context. Um, and the, I guess I'm going to go one step further, but there's, to me, the style guide, if you think about, if you remove style and you just keep guide, then you can also include elements of voice. Uh, again, to that branding element. So mm-hmm. not just doing don'ts on design, tonality on color choices, so on. but yes, mm. on tonality, on content, on way more than just the look and feel uh, and, you know, the practicality of design elements. Um, so that's how mm. I see the difference in guideline and style guide, but in the design world, we definitely use them almost as exchangeable. Mm. And that part cannot be automated or implemented well in, in software, right? Like, how do you... Im- automate tonality <laughs> can you i don't know <laughs> but at least the, let's say a, a style guide or design guidelines are usually targeted at, at people making charts right is that fair to say i mean i think all of these are targeted at people making charts but to, to gabriel's point some focus more on the aesthetic part of the problems and the aesthetic mm-hmm. questions and others focus on the technical questions and implementations and things and, and systemize things a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see already it's this muddy, <laughs> like, mess of people, machines, data, <laughs> audiences. You know, it's, it's that exciting space. And then really think about, okay, how can we abstract principles there and recurring rules and not just solve problems once, but more or less for once and all, <laughs> which is, which is of course the hard, the hard part. It, yeah. It's funny because it reminds me of what Alan was saying about the design system. Um, so at least just like Alan, I place it at the end. To me, it's what encompasses everything, mm. including style guide, but also design theme, design language, like the actual components and little design mm. element, like templates that you may have created. Uh, and I would call it a repository a repository of institutional knowledge that solves problems that keeps happening. Like that's how I would define it probably without even putting like what it is inside. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a big, big, big repository and that can, it can be flexible depending on your institution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think another thing worth calling out is that sometimes data visualization is its own thing. There is a data viz style guide and it lives up separate from the brand guide and the user interface guidelines and and other resources. Um, 
but more and more we're seeing all three of those things and other things as well come to like content guidelines and, and voice mm-hmm. and tone and things coming together in a single place um, so that they coordinate with one another too because mm-hmm. they they all intersect in you know important ways that we need to account for yeah yeah yeah, so there's a lot of like overlaps with adjacent maybe other design systems uh, like the branding or the UI design, and we need to see how we fit in with all of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I guess what's unique to data visualization is often the the extra like design vocabulary you need, like specific color scales that work, you know, have certain functional properties or chart types, and you know all the things we're all familiar with, legends and, and axes and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I, one of the challenges with writing guidelines for data viz that differs from brand guidelines and others is some of the other areas are just self-evident and really easy to explain the guidelines for. And data visualization has its own language and its own uh-huh. set of things. Uh, you, I mean, you it intersects with data literacy and some and some specific domain expertise that you might need to to be effective and Often I find myself in writing the guidelines. I'm like, man, I I need them also to read these books, or I I I, <laughs> I find myself wanting to teach data visualization as a discipline, and then I can give them guidelines on how to best use mm-hmm. visualization. And if you right. don't have that foundation, sometimes the guidelines come up a bit short because they have to be so basic. No. Yeah, same problem here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's that's the first real learning I think we all share probably is like you really need to define really well what the purpose of the whole thing and, and is and what your audience is. Like, is it skilled information designers that use it or should it be implemented in an automated system or should it be for total novices, like a foolproof system? Because that will shape everything in terms of what, what do we even supply people with and in which form, right? And yeah, I think if you skip that step, it's going to fall on your feet really soon. Uh, uh, that's my my experience, at least. <laughs> yeah, um, but maybe to make this a bit more concrete, um, maybe we can talk about some of the projects you've been working on in that space. Maybe that gives people also a bit of an idea of okay, well, what are the different challenges and the different types of flavors that exist? So, Alan, uh, do you want to talk a bit about Adobe Spectrum? Sure, sure. Uh, so Adobe Spectrum is uh, our design system. Um, if you want to take a look at it, you can find it at spectrum.adobe.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the first thing I want to point out is that like it's a whole team. There's a lot of people involved. And so I am a small piece of that whole ecosystem that ma- builds and maintains that. Um but uh, and the design system was about two years before we, old before we introduced the DataViz guidelines. Um, mm-hmm. We really struggled to articulate and structure the guidelines in a way that would make sense and be relevant to to our users. Um, and we still have a long way to go. I feel like the guidelines right now are pretty basic. But um, yeah, we we have that. And the primary purpose of our guideline is to help people who are building software. Right, mm-hmm. so it it is used for our you know .dot com website and some other things, but the primary focus is for how do we build you know really good software using that system. Mm-hmm. Cool, Gabriel, how how about you? So I worked on 
quite a couple. Um, and I can't talk about everything, so I'll talk about the one I'm publicly allowed to. Um, I think the one that's the most public that you can see on the Pentagram website is the Deloitte Insights. Um, it's a guideline and template, so it's not full design systems. Uh, and so Deloitte Insight is a magazine. It also has a web platform attached to it. Um, and previously, before I even joined Pentagram, the team with George Adelby had actually built guidelines for them before editorial data viz, so way more creative applications. So that was used only by information designers that already knew the roles and were pretty comfortable with it. Uh, talking about audience here. Um, and the issue that came back when they came back was that we cannot give those guidelines pretty much to our normal designers. So the team actually used external, a lot of external um, designers that mm -hmm. are around the world with different backgrounds from different countries. And they produce like hundreds of data viz, um per month. Uh, that I put. And it quite, they're quite fast. So fast turnaround you know, little supervision. So we were in contact with more of the creative direction, marketing, data viz team within the organization, uh, not so much the designers. So we had to create, you know, templates and guidelines, knowing that we have no contact with the final designer that's going to use them. And mm -hmm. they are not specialized in information design, not always at least. And they have a high turnaround themselves because they're external contractors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it had to well, be it's pretty... it's really hard mode. It's like all the hard parameters are switched on, right? Yeah, <laughs> so... it had to be pretty strict. And also we were working for both web and print. Of course, why not? Um, yeah. So just to add a little bit to that. So yeah, yeah and then, a bit but, of spice, yeah. you know. You know, and the law inside covers any themes, so it can be any type of data, whether it's about people, but you know, economic, like anything, everything, thrown in together in one mm. package. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably one the one that I'm that I can talk you know quite a bit on, and the other one is for a nonprofit organization that I cannot name. Uh, they work in the gender equality space, and this one was tricky because we had to do it and they hadn't produced any work yet it was made simultaneously to a brand and so mm -hmm. they knew what type of data they were working from with from scratch but no. they had not produced anything so we didn't have anything to even review we had to do from start and we had to make sure it would be used by designers and non-designers for social mm -hmm. media powerpoints anything possible so that was a an, another challenge on on mm -hmm. really sensitive topics too. So definitely interesting, right, right. different challenges here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can see already it's it's yeah can diff quite different requirements, and you need to yeah you know, be smart about what what you do right and and how how that will play out. So um, maybe talking about process, then how do you how do you address this? Like, do you first build a lot of chart examples like in, in your design team and then say like, okay, what are the recurring patterns? What seems to work? What doesn't seem to work? Or do you do it more top down in terms of, okay, we have the following principles, we have the following project constraints, you know, and sort of do it very like deductive in the sense that, okay, only one solution, you know, seems to work anymore now that we have like defined everything. Um, Or is it a mixture? Like, uh, how, how did you address these? Uh, how did you approach these projects? Maybe Gabby, you can, yeah. Okay, I'll start. It might be very different because we, so we, even me as an independent or within Pentagram, we are external contractors. So we don't have access to everything internally in the organization. That might be quite different than the way Alan works typically. Mm -hmm. um, so the way I like to work is I start with what I call analysis phase, which is just looking at, you know, 
obviously who, you know, who the organization is, a more classic design brief analysis of like who the mm. client is, you know, what do they know, what do they don't know. So if they have data viz, it's great because it gives you a great insight on like what has been produced, what type of data do they work with, what are the mistakes they keep making, what are the, you know, problems they keep. You can even have a whole like almost user research phase. Um, mm. So the idea First is to... the diagnosis, I, then the prescription, right? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, just, just kind of identifying like existing useful patterns, like things that have worked too and things that not working in the current applications and, you know, mm -hmm. who is working with it. It's way harder when we have a project, like I was talking earlier, where we don't have access to those existing applications because mm -hmm. there's none. Um, but there's always a base somewhere of like what data are they going to use? You know, where is it going to be published? Sure. Yeah. So I like the sciences phase and like understanding again who is going to use the guidelines and and this is the audience of the guidelines. So is it designer or non-designer? Because it's not always for a designer. Uh, but also who is the final audience of the data visualization? Mm -hmm, uh, so exactly. there's a second yeah. layer. It's a, it's a double hop. Yeah, there's <laughs> a double <laughs> hop here of like, okay, like typically if you work for a nonprofit, the final is probably going to be a public of a very uninformed public or on a sensitive topic. So what are the constraints already that are imposed on the project? So there's all this analysis phase. Um, and then I guess it's a bit of a mix match. What I like to do is a bit more of like, if it's it doesn't exist anymore, it's kind of like doing design first and then link that back to uh, the foundation of, I find it difficult to build the foundation first, decide the colors, everything without testing them because you're going to end up changing them. So mm. I tend to, even if the project doesn't include making templates, kind of templatize a little bit, like test out some basic charts or things they use regularly to see if we can start finding patterns and and, and put that back into guidelines. Um, so that's kind of how it works. The only added thing that I do and then Pentagram does too is what we call creative direction which is maybe a little different than a traditional style guide, which we're trying to find what makes those disavulations stand out. How do we connect them to the, the, like the voice of the brand? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's not just through like just colors and typefaces, but is there something specific, a specific way of a specific shape you use systematically? Mm. Um, so not just basic Like charts, an actual design idea in yeah, a sense like, that there, there is, there's a, like a design is there a metaphor it, that right? we can use yeah. throughout? Mm. Is there something that makes it stand out? That's just not mm. a design what decision, but unique, uh, that yeah. makes it unique. Um, and so that that is a little more on the creative side. That's less common, uh, and that mm -hmm. it's even harder to explain in style guides. But it's part of that that thinking. And then usually you test that on basic chart, and then you test that on editorialized charts because mm -hmm. all client usually needs editorial charts and not the most basic you know, the most traditional charts, uh, just to check if it works in conjunction with other organizational systems. Like, does it work in a magazine spread? Does it work in social media format? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we systemize that and we put that all together in, in like yeah, yeah, extended yeah. guidelines. Document. Yeah, but there's an interesting tension because of course you and, and Georgia, of course, are typically known and booked for a super creative, unique, one-of-a-kind work, right? And and now the expectation is you do that, but also sort of make it repeatable, right? And so I think there's, yeah. there's an interesting <laughs> tension there. <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. It's actually quite interesting because we end up mm -hmm. creating, to me, it's almost like I split the guidelines into of like traditional charts with, you know, the most traditional bar charts, bar charts, whatever you, you need to have that needs to be made in PowerPoint, like with that custom design. Uh, especially yeah. if we have users that are not designers. So PowerPoint, Canvas, 
raw graph, like the easy building blocks that can be reproduced and used for anything reports. But then we usually have a second section that's for designers and information designer. And that's and sometimes it can overlap a little bit of like it, it can be very simple things that you can do, like I don't know, adding a shadow, adding a texture. Photography. Mm. How do you use photography? Do you crop it? Do you not crop it? Is it a textured? Is it black and white? Is, does it use a mm-hmm. color? So, and this is so. This is something that we add that's almost branding, um, and that adds customization into the the guidelines. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and, and yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, Ellen, I could imagine your process is totally different because you don't work <laughs> in an agency, yeah. but it's more this ongoing. You know, big ship instead of the the little dinghy <laughs> with the little party on yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Earlier in my career, I worked for agency, uh, and we did a lot of brand guides and things of that nature, sure. which certainly informed a lot of the work that I do now. But yeah, it is different, and I do think there's no one process for this stuff. It really is part of the problem here is figuring out what an organization needs and how you can best deliver that. But uh, for us, and one of the advantages of being an internal team is we can deliver things incrementally, right? It does. It's not a single deliverable. Um, we can do something and then add to that over time. And right. so that's the approach that we've taken is and we try and prioritize the most important, most valuable, the things that are going to have the biggest impact, and then keep adding to that. And at certain, some point, we'll reach a threshold where you know the, the incremental value isn't worth the incremental cost. Be that you know actually monetary cost or just com- cost and complexity, because as your system grows, um, you can't grow indefinitely. <laughs> or it becomes unusable because it's too big and too complicated. Mm. So we, we're starting to run up against the bounds of what we feel is an appropriate level of complexity. Um, but yeah, we we do start by with the end in mind. So we'll often produce an, a lot of example screens and visualizations and UIs and then write the guidelines that would produce those if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, mm-hmm. So we work backwards Retrofit, often. basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what would have been the rules that, that would have made these charts that obviously seem to work. <laughs> you know? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so that, that's good. I, yeah. I feel like that's a good approach. But um, at some point, you have enough guidelines that you don't have to start with the end and you can just take mm. what's existing and kind of expand it a little and then see what you know comes out of it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's something we also struggled with a lot is like you want to get started somewhere and, and like build stuff and, and see stuff. Otherwise, how could you even progress in the project, right? You need something visual to, to work with and, and to debate. Yeah. At the same time, you feel like, oh, it's, it's such a big system. And if we just keep making graphics, you know, it's never be a proper system system, right? And so when when do you introduce these rules or do you redo all the example charts you did before if if some design decision changes like you know how do you keep it dynamic also and um yeah one thing i found there is is this design tokens approach that i'm super excited about it's like so if you're a bit technical inclined or you like coding anyways then i think that's worth looking into because it's a really neat way to sort of store all the basic design decisions in a standardized format and then ideally if the brand color changes or if the background color changes it all trickles through through your implementations, and there's also the risk that you then keep perfecting that system, 
<laughs> like, and it's it's kind of yeah, it's a little it becomes a little hobby to to <laughs> clean the token structure and rethink about the hierarchies. Then, um, but I think that helped me a lot to think about okay, what are the building blocks like. We need a background color. Oh, we also need a sort of a shaded background color. Or oh, we need two text colors or maybe three, right? And give them names and and not name them by how they look, but what they do. Oh, it's the high contrast or the low contrast version of it. And and that helped me a lot to think about it in a structured way on the basic Lego building block level and stay flexible in terms of, oh, I think we, we should change the text color on all charts. You know, that was much easier because we had that system in place. So, yeah. That's the benefits of design systems. Because I, I exactly. think instead of yeah. the, ga the gamline constraints versus a design mm. system and tokens and components and patterns help you be yeah. more flexible. In my opinion, it's like, it's more we're giving you the blocks and then you can make it yourself. Uh, yeah. And here are just a couple of rules about big mistakes you could make. Um, in you know, at Pentagon, we do a lot of just the rules only. And I think mm -hmm. that can be constraining and not flexible for an organization. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. On on the flip side, I think it allows that creative uh, work to have greater impact. So mm -hmm. if if you have to design every chart by hand, you spend a lot of time designing yes. the same thing again and again and again and again. <laughs> But if you have a system and mm. you're designing the system and playing with the tokens, the output is is scales up really quickly. It, I mean, it's nearly infinite, right? You have so many different outputs that can be automated, and so yeah, it's it's that flip. That the other side of it, right, is that the creativity that is left to do is more impactful and less uh, menial. Yeah, I love that because I think sometimes what you hear is, well, we don't need one because we want to do creative things, but it's the opposite. If you remove the small choices of picking the right font sizes, picking the right font away, then you can spend more time actually looking for creative solution, but you have some blocks that are predefined that makes it way faster and repeatable, mm. obviously. So I, I tend to agree. I think it actually opens up more flexibility if anything yeah yeah but it's an ongoing ongoing thing and uh yeah and i think that another big challenge is like i think the initial version is easy to build and then but the question is what happens afterwards right like how do you make it grow how does it evolve over time and how do you not have it end up like the German administration that has lots of really good rules that in isolation make a lot of sense but it's a bit too many of them overall. <laughs> and so how do you manage complexity when things grow, right? Or are even out of your hands at some point? Like, what's the life cycle of the whole thing? Well, my experience is the opposite. I think the first step is the hardest. Ah, I think interesting. the yeah. initial thing is so hard. Maybe it's just my mm -hmm. nature that I want it to be whole or complete in mm -hmm. some way. And just and so right I, from the beginning. Exactly. I, I have yeah. that kind of perfectionist mentality. I don't want to put something out there until it's ready and I really yeah. am confident mm -hmm. in it. But in my And so my experience is that part is the difficult part. But once you do have something out there, then delivering incremental value is a lot easier because you have a good feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. You know what people are using, you know what they like, you're hearing feedback. I mean, designers have feedback, right? They, they'll tell you what is and isn't working for them. And you can spend time with them to, to get into the why. And then for me, the 
the rest of the process is more natural. It's a lot more service oriented where you're like, oh, okay, well, this isn't working. So let's focus on fixing it or this doesn't exist yet. So let's create that thing. Um, And it's really just how many people need that. And that's, that can be a little more harder to determine, but you're just trying to measure impact. Mm. Well, like Gabby and I, we are brought in as external consultants. You're in-house. Yeah. What do you think? Like, well, yeah, what 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 can the roles of external consultants be versus in-house folks? Should I've also met people who said design system? No, we just work with we don't work with external people on on our design system. That doesn't make sense, right? Because they began in three months and, you know, and take, then takes care of you know the actual work that that happens afterwards. Um, or is there something we can do? <laughs> I don't know. What, what's your take on that? Well, at, at Adobe, we treat Spectrum like a product, like any mm. other product at Adobe. It's it's a thing that we build. The difference is our user base is almost entirely internal. We do have some external people, vendors and mm-hmm. uh, partners and so on that use Spectrum, but the primary audience is internal. And so I don't know how you would have a similar model with an agency not to say that agencies don't play a role in creating some of the initial work or coming in and helping you audit it or bring new life to it, bring new ideas. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, things can get a little stale internally because you're just kind of recycling yeah. the same set of ideas among the same set of people. So fresh perspective sure. can be really useful. Um I also think it depends on the nature of your organization, how big it is, right? If you mm. are a relatively small startup, you can't spare even a single person to run a design system. That would be like ludicrous to, to consider. And so having someone build something for you that you can just use and maybe touch up every year or so might be a better route to go. Like I said, there's mm. there's as many solutions as there are problems. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Gabby, any thoughts on that? Yeah. No, yeah. you raise a good point because I found it frustrating as a designer who makes guidelines as a contractor to just, you, we dropped it to a client and we out of here. Mm. Like no feedback matters. There's a scope that's defined. There's a budget that's defined. So if, if the scope was that we don't get feedback on it, we don't get feedback on it. Even though it works or it doesn't work, it doesn't matter almost because we get paid. Um, mm. Unfortunately, that's how the business works. Um, I, I, and I, I, I hear you, Alan, and I agree. I think there's a space for it where a small organization cannot afford, they don't have the time and the resources to set it up, like the initial big phase of doing that work. Um, but I do think that the development and the incremental changes needs to be done internally. Otherwise, you're going to end up paying an external agency for everything, and they are not as familiar to your organization needs than mm-hmm. you know the organization itself. So I think we, like, as an external agency, that we we have a value that we bring. Maybe it's at the initial phase. Maybe it's at a big review phase. Maybe it's just to, you know, nobody has time. So, you know, you give them, you let them do kind of the work and then you take over. Um, but yeah, we cannot, if you're going to maintain it, it has to be done internally. I think, I think you know, oh, sometimes we can come at consulting to solve issues, but I, I really think that, you know, our, our values are definitely limited here. <laughs> we can't do it all. Um, well, and I think that's part of the value of a design system is it needs to be a living thing because if it's static, um, it, it just doesn't continue to solve problems. You know, mm. you need it to evolve to solve the different problems that you encounter. So, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and and I've been thinking a lot about that too. Like, how do we actually make sure people use the things you know <laughs> that we design and and keep using? It? And they say like software is either maintained or abandoned, and I feel like the same might happen with design systems if you don't like have somebody internally always pushing for this the system we use. It's it's cool. This is how you use it, right? And so you need also these these advocates and people who. Tr do onboarding with new folks to keep it going and so on. And yeah, and somehow you need to think about that whole social process um, around it as well, right? Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about, maybe it's good also not to have so much rules, but more maybe supply more templates or tools or like really easy one-click solutions, you know, to do something. So think about what's the threshold to even using your design system. Like if it... If it seems to be a big burden or like a big, like, oh, I need to read this whole book before I can make a single chart, you know, then that, that immediately might be off-putting. And if you're then not there to enforce it, it's like, yeah, we, we don't care so much about this big rule book. Uh, so, yeah. But then again, you need to know really well what people want to make with it. And maybe that's often not that clear. It's It's interesting to think that External contractors like me, for instance, are designer and use guidelines. So we are often like the consumer of the product itself. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I guess the way I see it, I've changed quite a bit of the way style guide in agency work is often style guide only is a big PDF of 60 pages. Right. Um, you know, PDF, old school, sometimes made for print, so vertical, right? Also books, like, real books, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's interesting how you can just come in and be like, I know what I would like. So to your point, I think sometimes we don't have access, at least I didn't have access to the designer that would be using the book, but I was like, here is what I wish I had. Um, so, you know, textile, paragraph style made in advance in Illustrator, um, you know, oh, yeah. paragraph style made yeah. in advance in Figma, like if you do template, template documents, right? just yeah. that kind of thing. I don't want to have the copy paste the goddamn hex code anymore. <laughs> um, just things like that. So I think it's interesting how, you know, but sometimes we forget also, like we, we do things a certain way. So it's interesting how like sometimes having somebody new coming in can help with that or can look at it being like, I'm not sure this is working for me because I've also found mm -hmm. places where they're like, well, we do use the brand guidelines. We don't really know what we need. Um, you know, so it, it, you know, there's, there's a balance in everything of like asking the audience, having your own input and being flexible enough to change how we do things every time for a new client. For instance, I change it every time, everything, mm. including the basic charts or, you know, the decision charts on like decided what charts you use when it's different for every client, depending on the topic. Um, so it's definitely interesting how the audience can, can uh, need, like force us to adapt it every time, even for just the initial brief. And then I can't imagine internally how that changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I have a very similar experience. The, the very first foray I had into this was, uh, like a 60 page PDF, exactly oh, as God. you describe. <laughs> and we printed it out and it actually, everyone loved it because they had, we didn't have anything like that before. And mm -hmm. so people like engineers and designers had it at their desk and they'd have it flipped open to pages, but they would be typing in those hex codes yes. and rebuilding the buttons themselves. Yeah. And so it, I mean, it was only a week or two before an engineer was like, can we just get this in Git so that I don't <laughs> have to rebuild all this stuff? And we had designers that are like, like, where's the, <laughs> this is, this is how old I am as a 
designer, like, where's the f- illustrator <laughs> template for this or the Photoshop yeah, yeah. template for this? Or the palettes you can download and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I just right? want an yeah. ASE file with my color palette. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and so we started to create those. And so it, it slowly evolved from, you know, a PDF that people printed and kept on their desk to a website with downloadable resources. And I think it's really important to meet people where they are. Um, There are times when you need to push people into new and different tools to better do their job. But for the most part, they have the tools to do their job and they just need you to provide the resources. And so Mm -hmm. if your users are in PowerPoint... Make it easier. Exactly. If if they're in PowerPoint and that's what they're using to build their charts or Excel, you've got to provide those Excel and PowerPoint templates. uh, It pains me sometimes to say that, but it's Mm -hmm. true. Um, And likewise, you know, if they're in R or Tableau, like use the tools that they use, provide the resources in that tool's format and that tool's language, and you'll be more successful by far. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think that also... If you take that super serious means really you can't be too picky about all this the design details really like what the spacing is exactly or you know what type of tricky access configuration you have come up with but really be more really clear about these are un- our underlying principles and this is what like qualities all of our charts should have in terms of accessibility or you know voice or whatever but then being really flexible about how that happens and maybe there as a designer we need to be a bit more like the details don't matter that much you know it's fine <laughs> as long as the, the the general like direction is good or am i, I mean, being too generous here no I, I there's there's a lot of truth to that but i feel like one of my roles as a designer is to never give up on the ideal <laughs> <laughs> right, so the I always matters. Yeah. It, it does. It, the, that rounded corner makes a difference, right? It's mm-hmm. only a one pixel yeah. axis, but just yeah. round that corner and it makes it just makes it sing, right? And you can get that if they're working in one tool, but in another tool, like it just doesn't support that. Yeah. So there's a reality to what you're saying, but I, I do think we need to advocate for the ideal and mm-hmm. then compromise as needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have one gold, gold standard implementation. Also we say like, this is how it really should look like, you know, th- that's how it's meant, but then maybe right. be flexible on, <laughs> you know, in a different context, it's fine. If it doesn't hit all the, I also the found design it. Details. It's often that the, to me, the like pixel clothes, like those precise details mm-hmm. are helpful sometimes, for specifically non-designers or people who are like not, you know, I think this, because we can't teach them design, we have mm. to give them really precise rules so that they can, they don't have, they don't have the understanding of what, you know, the right spacing in text hierarchy, you know, and so we see it regularly when researchers make PowerPoint, right? Uh, no offense to researchers out here. Um, we respect you. We used to be there. <laughs> we know how it feels. But I think sometimes they just don't have the sense. They don't have time to even learn and we don't want to make them designers. So it's more, those rules can also be set up sometimes just to actually help them without having to like give them free work on how to do data viz. It's just hmm. like, here is it easy. You just have to follow this exact, 
you know, guidelines, this exact pixel, this exact rounding corner in your software, we give it to you so that you don't have to think about it really and to make your job faster. Otherwise, yeah. you, interpretation is nice, especially as designers, we know how to do things. So we feel more comfortable <laughs> taking, you know, some freedom into interpretation yeah, yeah. of the guidelines. But I think for other, other users, it might be really important to just help with that and just give really precise guidelines that just yeah, makes yeah. their work easier. Yeah, but then I'm thinking if, if the exact, like, one-to-one -one look really matters, then maybe it's actually better to supply a software that creates the thing yes. as it should look or, or a template, you know, um, because otherwise you end up with really long, super detailed specs. I think so, <laughs> but it's hard to sell to clients sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, right? <laughs> At the industry yeah. level, I think that's what I run yeah. into is often we, we get scoped for just the guidelines and no templates. Mm -hmm. And they might mm -hmm. come back six months later and ask for the templates. Yep. That happens regularly. Yep. But you wish... You could sell it and be like, you're going to need this. Believe me, you're going to need this <laughs> and yeah, the yeah. guidelines. Yeah, and this is where this initial scoping comes in, in terms of, okay, what do you hope to achieve? Who is this for? What what are the actual things we, we should supply because of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And at the same time, the whole tooling landscape is shifting too, right? It's like, what do you do your charts in? Is a, like, there's a new answer to that every two years. And so... And ideally, our our stuff should like survive a few of these iterations as well in terms of tooling. And so, there's a lot of challenges there. Um, I think we need to sort of wrap things up semi soon. I have two more questions. So one is about: Are there any caveats, traps, failures, things you wish you would have known before somebody sent you on that impossible journey um, that you could could share with? Our audience who might might be new to the field, like something valuable to avoid or just stuff that happened. Oh boy, I I would say be humble and listen. Uh -huh. <laughs> I remember early on, I had just discovered histograms. I'm like, oh, histograms, okay. And I had I thought I understood what a histogram was, and I was writing guidelines and explaining to people and. Six months later, I realized I was wrong about some fundamental things, <laughs> and uh, it was difficult to eat that crow and fix the wrongs that I had done because people trusted me, right? I, I taught mm -hmm. them things, and I thought I was right, and they thought I was right, and uh, I wish I had just been taking a little more time to educate myself before I had mm -hmm. put forth mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. So early feedback and and really get get people to to comment on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I like that you said people trusted me because to mm -hmm. my point, I think especially a contractor, we get a lot of trust and they think we they hire us as expert, right? So we tend to be trusted and you know whatever we say, it's gonna be the Bible. And I found it problematic, not problematic, but mm. I I found it. It's a lot of responsibility that we forget, I think. And I, I wrote, wrote about this recently, but I think especially when we make guidelines that are going to be used potentially by hundreds of people mm. or templates, it's, we have such a responsibility to do them properly. So not just for the user, so that they're usable, easy to understand, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we need, to me, the big caveat right now guidelines is we don't approach like ethics 
in data viz and guidelines. We're like, here's the job. This is how you make it. Especially when you're like me and you work with a lot of data, that, that, like social data, so about people. Um, mm. Of course, I think it's getting more common, accessibility, some kind of rules. Um, it's becoming more common, but I still see a lot of it that's just like, here's the colors, here's the thing, do whatever you want. Mm. And I just, I want to start those conversation with, you know, maybe we shouldn't, the colors matter, but maybe we should also question like, should guidelines also offer more guidance on when do you actually need to do a database? Which database mm. should you be doing? Mm. Like, should you actually emphasize differences between social groups, ethnicity, mm -hmm. for instance? Like, we yeah, have yeah. research mm. nowadays um, that shows that maybe it's a problem to raise awareness this way. And I'm wondering, and I know it's a little further than what designers are. I think we get caught into the detail of design, but at least designers like me who work on guidelines for those big organizations that, you know, approaches like sensitive topics. I'm just wondering if there's a place for us to be more responsible and think twice about, you know, the work we do um, and give guidance on maybe even like terminology. Like how do we use, you know, mm -hmm. ethnicities? Text, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. text, like, mm -hmm. you know, how are we, can we promote transparency in how data is sourced? within the guidelines. Like, I think there's so much more we can do with it. That's not just design related. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess that's my big, that's my big statement. I just want designers to be a little yeah, more, yeah. but to Ellen also spaces having- think, think about more than decoration of, of numbers, right? Yeah. And also have that yeah, humility, yeah. you know, I think mm. he makes mm. a great point. Like we are a little bit approaching like top down approach or like designers say something yeah. and we are problem solvers. Yeah, and also the, the hope is with this design system, blah, it's the Bible. You know, it's once and yes. for all, this is how you do it. And we all know this is not how it works. You can be, you can do your, you know, you can be brilliant at your job and do it for 30 years and still every project is new and there's always uncertainties and doubt and you could always do it this way or that way. And in the end, you just make an informed judgment call, but there's no absolute truth in design, right? And Right. So, I, yeah. and <laughs> I love that point because I think there's so many decisions that lead up to the final product of a visualization. Mm -hmm. And a visualization doesn't often <laughs> acknowledge those things, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the most problematic problematic pieces of data visualization is because it's so easy to trust. That's why we see so many problems emerge around you know, dishonest charts and things of that nature. Yeah, Even yeah. the most well-intentioned individual is obscuring the actual truth to some extent in an effort to tell a story or to, to simplify a problem or illustrate a point. So, I, I don't know how to solve that, but, and it goes back to, I guess, one of my earlier points about the desire to educate people, not just about styles, but about data literacy and all the overlaps and intricacies of mm. data visualization. Um, I, I just, I think that's a, an important thing. And we, to your point, Gabriel, we can't lose sight of that. Mm. No. Yeah, I don't know how to do that in Gallup. So yeah, it's definitely an <laughs> yeah. education, maybe. But it is it is about. I think we tend to focus designer. We're taught for a long time that we are like solution maker, you know. But we should mm. focus on approaches, on like something that's flexible, agile, and that gives space to others to give the opinion and take decision. You know, give them the best tool, including an educative tool to make those decisions rather than just get really strict guidance that might be also found false or harmful in 20 mm -hmm. years. Because I think we see yeah, a lot yeah. of that nowadays. Yeah. 
That's a great point. Uh, maybe it's related to my last provocation that I, I want to throw in here because maybe I'm just getting old, but I find that a lot of design is really boring these days. Like web design is super boring. Everything looks the same. There's like big round buttons. Uh, you know, I feel like there's like five templates and they are just applied all over the whole web. Um, and I think in a way it's cool because it's everything's super easy to use now. No surprises, you know, it's like, cool, I know my way around on the other hand, I feel like, oh, if we streamline everything and every get, if everything gets formalized and optimized and templatized and standardized, where's the fun in that? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't we like, you know, sort of abstract away all the interesting, a bit uncomfortable, weird, edgy things? If, if everything becomes formalized and standardized and, and are we contributing to that with our design system work? That's something I, I've been thinking about. I have a thought on that. <laughs> so it's an interesting question because you said, you know, I know my way around, which I think most people do. And, you know, the idea of like, we've standardized web design, for instance, is pretty standardized. I think there's a question of like, it's standardized for who? Because, mm. you know, we're even in this conversation, right? I like Westerners, you know, Eurocentric and then Americans. And I think we need to ask this question of like, are we, when we do that, when we autom like when we automatize things, when we, you know, when we do this thing of standardizing, do we take into account enough people? Is it, is it really, you know, I think we all have like this thing of like, this is how design is done. Modernism mm. with like, it needs to be, clean and minimal and sans serif like why <laughs> you know when you look at design from east asia yeah. like it might look very mm -hmm. different and to the eyes of american designer like me i'm like it's messy it doesn't respect text hierarchy it's not mm -hmm. helvetica uh, well no helvetica doesn't write <laughs> like indie sorry guys um so it's interesting how i wonder i'm not against it i actually found it mm -hmm. like to me automating but and you question if it's actually true or if it's just a slice of reality or is it for the right thing when mm. is it used? How is it used? For who is it used? Is, mm. I think, those questions that, you know, are, like, I find challenging. Like, I want to automate mm -hmm. my workflow. I want to, I think it's so practical to have those technology Figma components. Like, it's so great. I just wonder if we automate, we tend to repeat a certain point of view in design that has mm -hmm. been put by a certain type of population. And maybe mm -hmm. it doesn't apply to everyone. It's not fit for every audience. Yeah. I, I I agree with that. I, I think that <laughs> I like that. Um, I think my take on it is that sometimes it's an enabler, right? We've talked about that a little bit already. By by systemizing design, it enables you to design a lot of things at once, mm -hmm. and that's really cool. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. really powerful. Um, and typically. The thing that kind of design you're enabling is, to your point, more it's pretty expected and not terribly exciting, but mm -hmm. it works and it's usable. Um, but that's not to say you couldn't build a system that is just wild and crazy <laughs> and super creative. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I, I'm really excited for the next 10 years because I think not only are the tools that we use to do this work going to continue to evolve and change and there's going to be new ones and things, I think the work that comes out of those tools is going to be better too. I think mm -hmm. one of the challenges to being creative 
isn't necessarily the systemization, it's the feedback loop, right? Right now, mm-hmm. like I author my system over here and then I see the results over here and it's very difficult to kind of connect all those dots. Mm-hmm. And I think software is going to get better and better at providing creative feedback loops for mm-hmm. all types of design, not just the kind of traditional print and web design that we've done up until now, mm-hmm. but the more system level design. Sure. If you think and about think, AI tools, you know, uh, yeah. that can generate exactly. like hundreds of variations yeah. of something and then you you pick and curate and combine. That's, that's exactly. a whole new thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the idea of curating, like I love I'm obsessed with AI. Like I think it's gonna be mm-hmm. it's gonna change how we approach things. I mm-hmm, think it's yeah. a tool. It's just a tool. So we need to use it as a tool and it's not a finality. It's not just you mm-hmm. run it and then you just dump it and that's done. And yeah. if we involve human beings in it and we still have a customization of it, you know, and we we curate the result, then then that's the uh, it seems like the right approach to, to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and maybe Lego is a good metaphor in a sense that it's super standardized. Like Lego is the most standardized tool you could think of, or toy you could think of, right? It's actually, each block is super boring, <laughs> but you can build anything out of it. It's like endless fun, right? And so maybe, yeah, thinking about more like, oh, it's it's building blocks. It's something you can play with and, and build stuff out of, you know, is, is a better thought than... It's a book of laws. You have to abide to it. <laughs> yeah. It might yeah. also help with gatekeeping in a way. Like I wonder yeah. how much when I'm seeing AI mid journey, like how much of now people who are creative but never got the chance to be educated, have the time to learn Photoshop, can produce art. You know, there's so much obviously it's a little further away from a discussion, but automation and all those tools that are going to make our work practical is also going to allow more people to join the community of designer. Like yep. designer is going to yep. take a bigger you know, a bigger umbrella maybe will have more people with different opinion and, and different background. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. So the more people we bring in, immediately we have more diversity because there's more viewpoints represented. Yeah. Oh, now I'm thinking about AI plus design systems. That's oh, such a combination, right? If you if you had in Figma, like you have your little... Like, I've seen some. Some people know? are working on some. It's definitely coming. I'm like, yeah, if I don't yeah. have to do the components by hand anymore, it'd be great. That would be kind of nice. Just write a little text. And Make all the buttons variants. we need, you know, and here we go. Yeah. yeah. No, but yeah. if you could also like teach, as you said, a design idea or like a principle or like a certain approach and then just see a hundred variations of that, I think that's that's exciting. Yeah. Cool. So I'm 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 glad that there's a positive spin to a slight doubt at the end, but I think there is an interesting tension there, and it's, it's one I, I also want to keep exploring. Like how how can we work, make work that lasts and is really like professional and solves people's problems, but also still keep things exciting and inspiring and and provoking also sometimes, right? So I think that's the eternal design tension. <laughs> that we all have to deal with. Yeah, Wonderful. I think that was a great conversation. I hope we didn't confuse you all with our design system nerd talk. <laughs> um, we'll put a few links in the show notes to the examples we discussed, a few resources. And yeah, maybe we can do a follow-up episode on AI plus design systems now that we're all excited about. <laughs> um, yeah, in the meantime, thanks for joining me. And uh, see you soon. Thank you, Moritz. Bye-bye. 
Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories, where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our own page at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.